Welcome. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Welcome to episode 188 of Green and Growing in the Garden, the weekly gardening show produced for the Los Angeles Radio Reading Service. I'm Hugh Ralston, your host and producer, and I look forward to sharing with you over the next 40 minutes updates to our local garden scenes and recent articles about gardens, plants, and designers, both in California and around the world. Gardens are in my DNA. I was raised in a family of gardeners, and my grandparents and mother handed down a love of flowers, of orchids, and of roses, among many other gifts. I have been an inveterate gardener for years, from that first six-pack of marigolds I bought at Home Depot in suburban Connecticut to laying out birthday rose gardens, planting fruit trees, and rescuing overgrown and underloved gardens, as well as building my own garden library from classic design texts to glossy coffee table indulgences. I spent time getting to know California's Mediterranean garden landscapes, plants, and climate, even as I have fallen for English and continental garden design traditions, grown fond of the particularities and peculiarities of succulents, which perform so well in our climate, and learned to love and respect the quiet power of Japanese gardens. I have been active in local garden societies and visited botanical gardens around the world, believing not only in the benefits of gardening itself, but of being in the garden, and of being charmed by that special alchemy of plants, climate, soil, design, place, and space. Gardens are a place where we can become more alive and more connected with the world we share with others. And, as the good book reminds us, it all began in a garden. Welcome to this week's show. We start this week with an article by Jeanette Marantos, published on the 29th of December in the Los Angeles Times, 10 Plant Gurus on How They'll Experiment in SoCal Gardens in 2023. In case you totally turned out during the holidays and haven't heard, Southern California water agencies have already declared a drought emergency for 2023. So expect another tight year for irrigating gardens and lawns, if yours survived last summer's restrictions. This was obviously written before the recent rainstorms. This is a good time to start planning how to manage all this in your yard. So we asked professional plant people and influencers for a little inspiration. What are their 2023 resolutions for their personal gardens or yards? Not surprisingly, most are looking at ways to conserve water. Luckily, January is a great month for garden planning and learning. Check out the activities in our calendar and get inspired by what 10 SoCal plant experts are planning in the coming year. Brandy Williams is a landscape designer at Garden Butterfly who uses native plants, succulents, and other drought-tolerant varieties to transform her clients' yards. But at home, Williams wants to grow more succulents indoors in 2023. Cacti and aloe are the only types of succulents I've had success with indoors, she wrote in an email. Medicinal aloe performed well in bright light and little water near a window. 
My indoor cacti garden consists of beginner-friendly Mammillaria and Trichocereus grandiflorus in our kitchen garden window, a safe place to display prickly cacti specimens. Bruce Schwartz is a native plant collector and grower at LA Native Plant Source Nursery based in his hilly Highland Park yard. Schwartz resolves to use only harvested rainwater for irrigation by increasing his storage capacity from 800 to 1,000 gallons before July 2023. Harvested rainwater won't keep a lawn or thirsty plants alive, he wrote, but for a garden of Southern California natives, it's a near-perfect solution. I had only 400 gallons early in 2022 and was still able to water all my seedlings and some newer plants with rainwater for the entire summer. Using harvested rainfall is a truly wonderful feeling. Guilt-free watering. Kenneth Sparks, a.k.a. Farmer Ken, is an urban farmer and garden trainer who sells his produce at the Altadena Farmer's Market and at Mobile Prosperity Market in Los Angeles. With the help of crowdfunding, he recently moved his farm from his East L.A. backyard to about an acre in Hemet, where he's already added 150 fruit trees. My New Year's resolutions are to incorporate even more flowering plants for a pollinator-friendly habitat and add more drought-tolerant fruiting plants and trees, such as pomegranates, figs, olives, grapes, and prickly pears, and more late-season varieties to fill in seasonal production gaps. George Kochi tore out the lawn in his vintage Koreatown yard and replanted with California natives, reducing his monthly water bill to less than $24. Among his goals for 2023, doubling his efforts at water conservation and composting, such as using a black trash bin to catch excess roof water, which would overflow my catch barrels. It provides 50 gallons or more of rainwater for hand watering weeks later. He also plans to reduce his green bin loads by returning fallen leaves, tree debris, and branches back into the garden. Isara Ongweizeth, senior landscape designer for Form LA Landscaping, wants to see how his existing native plants expand without any irrigation water. Every designer's garden is one part laboratory, and I actively change things around, he wrote. But in 2023, he's going to stop and see what happens. Through the hot summer, my California buckwheat, Cleveland sage, and Indian mallow brought bees, butterflies, and delight, and demanded only seasonal rain. This could be the direction for my next garden project and or my clients' yards. Lori Krantz is an urban farmer and garden builder at Edible Gardens LA and co-owner of the new LA Home Farm store in Eagle Rock. My resolution is to devote more time and care to growing vegetable, herb, and flower seedlings, she wrote. I've done it for years with some success and many failures. At first, it was the animals, birds, raccoons, and the like getting most of the sprouts. Now it is carving out the time to devote to their care. I'm working on making their daily care part of my morning ritual, like coffee. Lee Adams native plant landscape designer with Studio Petrocore, will be trimming the trees and hedgerow around my property before the birds begin nesting, enhancing the density of shade, wildlife shelter, and sunlight, she wrote. The trim from the trees becomes mulch for the garden, and part of the next action item, emptying my bioswales of logs. The rich soil accumulating in the swales will side-dress her fruit trees. The new tree cuttings will go in the bottom of the swales to support fungi and absorb water. And the older, decomposing logs go back on top and continue to break down and become nutrient 
rich soil. Terry Richardson, a.k.a. The Black Thumb, is a physical therapist who teaches about orchid care on Instagram as at the BLK Thumb. In 2023, he wants to increase self-sustainability through expanding our veggie garden, he wrote, and use plant care more as a mindful practice, a kind of meditation done with gratitude. I want to get back to using plant care as a way to ground myself, check in with myself, and spark gratitude in the growth. Tim Becker, horticultural director of the Theodore Payne Foundation, sees water conservation as one of the most pressing issues of our generation, he wrote. So at his West Adams home, Becker wants to capture, infiltrate, and sequester as much precipitation, gray water, and recycled water as possible. This means rain swales, redirecting gutters, installing rain barrels, putting in some pumps, designing MySpace appropriately, applying mulch, and being hyper-aware about how much precious potable water is put down. And Ivan Savio, master gardener and creator of GardeningInLA.net, wants more flower bulbs and salvias around her Pasadena home. Salvia, also known as sage, comes in many varieties, and I've been thoroughly impressed with their growth filling in the garden with their attractive foliage and colors, she wrote. And bulbs come up each year despite increased heat and lessened water, and I don't have to do anything more with them. They multiply in place. Then I dig up the clumps, spread them throughout my garden, and give them to gardening friends. Now here are plant-related activities for January, and I will include those only that exist after today's show, January 25th. On January 7, 21, and February 4th, Foundations of Native Plant Garden. Nine hours of instruction over three days by botanist Terry Huang from 9 a.m. to noon each day at the Theodore Payne Foundation, 10459 Texford Street in Sun Valley. Huang, Director of Living Collections, Learning and Engagement at South Coast Botanic Garden, will discuss seed saving, rhythms of our climate, personalities of the state's unique flora, and how to better garden with the earth. Expect classes to be taught indoors and out. Class sizes will be small, and advanced registration is required, $420, $350 for Foundation members, and the website is theodorepain.org. On January 25th, Native Plant Maintenance Basics, a walk-and-talk class led by Native plant enthusiast Eric Blank from 9 to 10 a.m. at the Theodore Payne Foundation Demonstration Garden, 10459 Tuxford Street in Sun Valley. Participants should wear closed-toe shoes and long pants and be prepared for an hour walk on sometimes steep and uneven surfaces. $15, $12 for members at the theodorepayne.org. January 28th, Seed Collecting Basics, two classes taught by Disconso Gardens plant propagation horticulturalist Frank Obregon about how to collect seeds and plant your own spring garden. Offered from 10 to 11.30 a.m. and again from 2 to 3.30 p.m. at the gardens, 1418 Disconso Drive, La Canyana, Flintridge. Tickets are $30, $25 for members, Disconso Gardens, one word, dot org. Also on January 28th, Understanding Oak Trees, a walk-and-talk class led by arborist Allison Lancaster from 9 to 11 a.m. at the Theodore Payne Foundation, 10,459 Tuxford Street in Sun Valley. The class includes instruction in oak tree life cycles, including fire adaptation, non-harmful insects that use oaks as habitat, disease and pests that can threaten the trees, 
and maintenance tips, including drought-conscious watering. Tickets are $35.25 for members, theodorepain.org. Also on January 28th, ask an arborist about California native trees. A walk and talk led by arborist Allison Lancaster, 1 to 3 p.m. at the Theodore Payne Foundation, 10459 Tuxer Street in Sun Valley. The walk around the foundation's grounds will include information about planting, pruning, watering pests, and diseases of sycamore, torrey pine, palo verde, Catalina ironwood, and other native trees. Bring photos and questions about your trees at home. Tickets are $35, $25 for members, theodorepain.org. And on January 29th, Herb Walk at the Ernest E. Debs Regional Park with the Herb Club Los Angeles, a new group designed to get young people to connect with the land and get to know their plant neighbors, according to founder Andrea Jimenez. Herb walks are accessible to beginner herbalists, botanists, and just about anyone interested in reconnecting with the land. The two-hour walk starts at 10 a.m. at 4235 Monterey Road in Lincoln Heights. Walkers are encouraged to bring a notepad, pen, and water. Participation is free, but registration is required. The website is herbclubla, all one word, dot com. And that is it for this article by Jeanette Morantos, published on December 29th in the Los Angeles Times. Ten plant gurus on how they'll experiment in SoCal Gardens in 2023. Our next article, also by Jeanette Marantos, staff writer at the LA Times, was published on the 12th of January in the Times. Want glorious spring wildflowers? Here's what you should scatter right now. Love it or hate it, SoCal's ongoing deluge likely will fuel one silver lining come spring, a massive wildflower bloom in our hills and deserts. And more good news, it's not too late to create a super bloom in your yard or even a patio box if you plant as soon as you can in January, says Tim Becker, wildflower expert and director of horticulture at the Theodore Payne Foundation. Typically, the best time to plant wildflower seeds is in November and early December, Becker said, so the seeds can benefit from winter rains and have time to grow tall, sturdy plants. Wildflowers need moist conditions to germinate and grow pushing their roots deep into the soil to follow the moisture underground. But with all the rain we've gotten in January, there's still time to scatter wildflower seeds in your yard and get good results, he said. Another bonus, wildflowers are self-seeding. So once you get a good bloom and let them go to seed, they'll pretty much take care of themselves after that, said Becker, who often mixes seeds for edible spicy mustard greens, lettuce, arugula, cilantro, and other greens into his personal wildflower mix so he can forage for food among his flowers. If you let the greens go to seed, they'll reseed along with the wildflowers, he said. But be aware, you might have to do some thinning. When you let your wildflowers and greens grow everywhere, you'll have lettuce and poppies coming out of the cracks in your driveway. At some point, you might have to weed out your reseeding plants if they grow in areas where you don't want them, but they're fairly easy to manage, Becker said. Remember, we're talking wildflowers, right? So if you want to shake the stuffiness out of your landscape, here are Becker's tips for how to get started. One, 
get some good seed. Most nurseries sell wildflower mixes, but if you're interested in building habitat and discouraging invasive species like African daisy, aim for mixes or seeds that are native to California to help local insects and birds. This time of year, some wildflower mixes may be sold out, but the region's two premier native plant nurseries, Tree of Life Nursery near San Juan Capistrano and Theodore Payne Foundation in Sun Valley, offer seed mixes and packets for individual flowers you can buy at their store or order online. Becker said other good online sources for California wildflower seeds include Mojave Desert Land Trust in Joshua Tree, Larner Seeds in Marin County, Seed Hunt in Central California, and Sierra Seed Supply in Plumas County in Northeast California. Note that you can purchase up to a pound of seed mixes from Theodore Payne, depending on the size of ground you want to cover. And Altadena Made sells California wildflower seed balls and seed bark online and at local farmer's markets. Unless you want a carpet of one flower, such as a rich orange expanse of California poppies, Escasolcia californica, or a glowing blanket of yellow goldfields, Lasthenia californica, it's more fun and better for habitat building to plant a mix of flowers which you can create yourself or buy ready-made, Becker said. Some of his favorites beyond California poppies and lupin include Gilia, Nemophilia, baby blue eyes, Leia platyglossa, tidy tips, yellow daisy-like flowers with white edging, Clarkia, which come in many colors, Facilia, which look like arching purple caterpillars, and Salvia columbare, or chia, an annual sage that produces chia seeds. Planting a mix enhances biodiversity and gives you a longer season of wildflower blooms, Becker said. I recommend you have anywhere from five to ten species in your mix. Bonus, some pre-made mixes might even include smaller perennials like yarrow, blue flax, or perennial lupin, he said. Just read the packets to see what you're planting. Two, choose a place to plant. Ideally, you have some bare, unmulched ground, such as a former lawn or parkway. Clear the weeds there and plant some wildflowers. It's so damned easy, Becker said. The trick is to do some gentle prep without compacting the soil, which can damage emerging seedlings and reduce infiltration, making it more susceptible to runoff. If the ground is already prepared, meaning it doesn't have weeds and is already lightly cultivated, Becker said you can just scatter the seeds on damp soil. More about that technique below. If you need to do some prep work, Wait a week after rain for the ground to dry out slightly. You don't want to walk on super-saturated ground because it will compact the soil. The ground should still be damp, but not saturated, he said. Use a metal rake, also known as a bow rake, or a hula hoe to rough up the first three to four inches of soil to make it easier for the seeds to grow. You can work some compost into the soil too, but only down about three to four inches, he said. Don't go in with a shovel and start digging. Wildflowers like disturbed soil, but won't sprout if they are buried too deep. The important thing is don't cultivate during or right after a heavy rainstorm, Becker said. Go get your seeds and wait a week or so until upper few inches of the soil has drained out a bit. One tip, if you've just removed your lawn and recently planted some perennial native or drought-tolerant plants, instead of mulching around the new plants, plant wildflowers to act as mulch during the winter then add your wood-based mulch in the spring after they bloom. Three, remove any weed sprouts. Invasive weeds are a big competition for wildflowers, easily outpacing and crowding them out. 
So here is where your hula hoe can come in handy. Just slicing off emerging weeds at the ground so the wildflowers have a fighting chance. You can also hand pull the weeds, whichever is easiest. Just remember that the more weeds you leave in the ground, the less space, sun, and nutrients your flowers will have to grow. Four, size up your planting area. Find the size of the area you want to plant, then read your seed packets to see how much area one packet will cover. Be sure you're buying enough seed for the area you want to plant. Five, mix your seeds with native soil. Fill a five-gallon bucket about halfway with soil from the garden where you intend to plant, and then use your hands to thoroughly mix in your packet or packets of seed. Mixing the seeds with damp garden soil, not overly wet or dry, makes it easier to evenly scatter them around your growing area, Becker said. You can also use horticultural sand, but Becker prefers using the soil where the seeds will be growing. This technique is especially helpful for young children who want to help. All you do is pick up handfuls from the bucket and start scattering them around, he said. It's a fun activity to do with your kids. Six, lightly rake over the seeded area. After you sow the seeds, use a leaf rake to lightly nest the seeds into the soil. If rain is expected that evening or the next day, let the rainfall soak the seeds into the ground. If no rain is expected, use the shower nozzle on your hose and dampen the seeded area to help settle the seeds into the ground and start their germination, which typically takes about 10 to 14 days. Note, if you're planting on a hillside, Becker said, you'll need to work the seeds into the soil a little more to be sure they don't wash away in the next rainfall. Seven, don't kill your sprouts. You want to keep weeds out of the seeded area, but you don't want to remove emerging wildflowers. So if you're not sure whether the sprout you see is a weed or a wildflower, let it grow a little while longer until you can identify what's coming up. And be sure to tell your gardener or landscaper that you've planted wildflowers so they don't weed up your hard work. Pro tip, if you have lots of weeds in your garden, get some potting soil and grow a few of your wildflowers in a pot so you can more easily identify the emerging plants you want to keep, Becker said. Eight, planting in containers. Theodore Payne has a special wildflower mix for pots that call for containers at least 12 to 14 inches wide and six inches deep. But Becker said you can plant wildflowers in any container at least four inches deep. The bigger the container, the more you can grow, he said. Just be sure to use potting soil mixes with good drainage, such as soils designed for cactus and succulents. Remember, Becker said, the smaller the container, the more water it's going to need because it will dry out faster. So in the case of planting wildflowers, the wider the container, the better. You can also scatter wildflowers around a potted perennial, he said. Wildflowers can be a living mulch in a garden or in a container. It's an article by Jeanette Marantos, published in the Los Angeles Times on the 12th of January. Want glorious spring wildflowers? Here's what you should scatter right now. While we're focused on seeds, our next article by Margaret Roach was published in the New York Times on January 11th. It's okay to get carried away when you're shopping for flower seeds. Here's how to make sure those impulse catalog purchases result in happy surprises, not buyer's remorse. 
Not to put a damper on your seed catalog binging, it marks the ritual start to every new garden season, after all. But Andrew Shiler has a question. Is there a plan attached to your impulsive behavior? Go ahead and let the catalog's vivid descriptions and photographs seduce you into trying something unfamiliar. Mr. Schuyler, who goes by Drew, always does. Some of his impulse purchases of annual flowers in a recent January's have resonated with visitors at the Untermeyer Gardens Conservancy, the 43-acre public landscape in Yonkers, New York, where he's the assistant head gardener. They include orange-red tassel flowers, Emilia cochinea, that call in autumn's migrating monarch butterflies, and the four-inch-wide deep orange zinnias, Zinnia elegans inca, that called out to an R&B artist who was filming a music video at the garden and snagged one as an impromptu prop. One or two really great plants show up every year that are only in the gardens because we grew them from seed, Mr. Schuyler said. They were not part of the plan, just something extra we tried. The master plan for Untermeyer's extensive display beds, borders, and containers had been designed well in advance with more than 8,000 young plants or plugs ordered to match. Then some irresistible oddballs ended up in a shopping cart on a winter whim. But for each happy afterthought, Mr. Schuyler promptly took the next step. He married every impulse with an equal measure of discipline, studying up on exactly how and when to sow those seeds. I approach it the way I approach cooking, he said, which is to look at a ton of recipes and then find some middle ground to guide me. When he saw a catalog photo of purple belvine, Rhytoketon, Atrosanguineum, he imagined how it would look cascading out of hanging baskets rather than climbing. Its flowers are extravagant, with extra-long maroon-purple clangor dangling from each fuchsia bell. Its distinctive leaves are heart-shaped with toothed edges. But the plant was unfamiliar and proved to have particular needs. Both light and warmth are required for germination, and it can sometimes take more than a month for seedlings to emerge. Good to know, or he might have given up on it too soon. A favorite resource for this homework assignment is Mr. Schuyler's tattered copy of the industry classic, Ball Culture Guide, the Encyclopedia of Seed Germination by Jim Now, formerly of the Ball Seed Company. Seed catalogs are another important information resource, notably Johnny's Selected Seeds and Select Seeds. Both offer solid, detailed, growing information. Each acquisition and any secrets revealed, the ideal sowing depth and temperature requirements, for instance, make their way onto Mr. Schuyler's spreadsheet, arranged in order of when the seeds will be sown. Here's how to calculate that. Subtract the number of weeks each variety requires indoors from when you plan to transplant it into the garden. The earliest possible setout date is based on how long before or after the final frost a variety can be safely set outside according to your research. And then there's a reference for an online calculator. Open the cheese drawer of the Untermeyer staff refrigerator and you'll see corresponding evidence of such planting among the packets in cold storage. Multiples are joined by rubber bands. A post-it note affixed to each little bundle to indicate the intended start date. Cosmos, zinnias, marigolds, and Mexican sunflowers, Tithonia rotundifolia, for instance, are marked to get going together on April 1. 
For professional and home gardeners, starting from seed has many advantages, not the least of which is a far more extensive range of possibilities than garden centers stock as transplants in the spring. Those who want color weeks before most popular annual blooms don't have to settle for any old basic solid yellow or orange calendula, calendula officinalis, if the local nursery even sells calendula seedlings. A seed order can deliver sophisticated peach-colored flowers like sunset buff, triangle flashback, or orange flash, with dark centers and bicolor petals, their undersides revealing contrasting reddish or bronze tones. Something else you won't find at a garden center is an African milkweed that puts on a big late-season show with masses of three-inch papery green pods covered in spiky hairs adorning stems that grow to four feet or taller. Asclepius psychocarpa, or gum phocarpus psychocarpus, is a plant of many names, including Oscar milkweed, hairy balls, and balloon plant, and makes for high drama in the ground or in a vase, including when it's dried. The Untermeyer last-minute surprises list recently included Zinderella peach, a zinnia whose blooms look more like a scabiosa, capsicum annuum black pearl, a pepper that doesn't look like a pepper, also made its way into the garden, likewise started from seed. What is this black cherry? Mr. Schuyler recalls visitor asking of the purple black fruits on bushy plants with matching foliage. Nobody knew it was a pepper until they started to turn red in September. It's a purchase he highly recommends. Growing flowers from seed also empowers the gardener to produce backup seedlings to swap in later as early plantings tire, a moment when nurseries are no longer stocking transplants. Don't expect a flowering annual to carry on from spring through fall any more than you would expect a row of lettuce to, Mr. Schuyler advised. Even the longest bloomers have their limits. We think of something like cosmos as all summer blooms, but even cosmos peters out, he said. Ones you sow in April are going to be done by August. Ones you sow in July will take you to November. This isn't a one-and-done situation. This year, there will be lots more successions to work into the seed-sowing calendar, including lettuce. Two of Mr. Schuyler's colleagues are browsing catalogs for seed to bring to life a new section of the Untermeyer landscape. A quarter-acre formal vegetable garden and small orchard overlooking the Hudson River was prepared last year by high school interns who will plant and tend the vegetable beds in the coming season, and perhaps even suggest some last-minute additions of their own. Key steps for better seedlings. Mr. Schuyler cultivated his propagation skills as a student at the Longwood Gardens Professional Horticultural Program in the Brandywine Valley area of Chester County, Pennsylvania. Producing thousands of plants in a large-scale greenhouse setting requires a modular system. Everything at Untermeyer Gardens is produced in four-inch pots with 15 to a flat. Rather than seeding into trays of individual cells, each variety is first sown thickly into one of those pots. It typically grows there until the first true leaves appear, although robust growers may be ready for the next step when they still have only seed leaves or cotyledons. Then the sturdiest among each thicket of tiny seedlings is moved up to its own pot, a process called pricking out. At home, you could just move each into its own cell. For those determined to grow better seedlings, Mr. Schuyler offered some advice. Don't start too early. 
As excited as you might be in February to sow all your flower seeds, you really only need to do pansies then, he said. Make a calendar. Do the math, subtracting the weeks required indoors from the desired outdoor transplant date. Then organize packets by sowing date. Schedule succession sowing dates later on, too, to fill holes with fresh transplants when early crops fade. Invest in lights, like an LED strip light and stand from Sunblaster. Windowsills don't support strong seedlings. Use germinating mix labeled for seed starting, not potting soil, which is coarser, and never garden soil. Wet the medium in a garden tub before filling containers. You don't want it to be sodden or dripping, just evenly moist. If your germination mix isn't fully wetted at the start, Mr. Schuyler said, subsequent waterings won't fully wet it, and there will be dead spots the water never got to. Tamp the seed bed down before sowing into it. Mr. Schuyler uses a block of wood to form a solid, even base. How deep should you sow? Research whether a particular seed should be covered or if it needs light for germination. If it says it wants light, I just press the seed in, he said. If it says cover, I'll lightly cover. Sift, don't smear. Applying an uneven covering of germination mix by hand and spreading it with your fingers risks moving seed into clumps. Use a wire colander instead to sift a layer on top. The finishing touch, a top dressing of granite poultry grit available at Tractor Supply Company helps keep the soil surface clean, reducing disease. Is heat required? Varieties that require heat to germinate should go on to an electric heat mat, but remove the seedlings promptly upon germination or risk weakening them. When watering, think mist, not deluge. I had a teacher at Longwood who said that you have to keep a crystalline fairy energy in the greenhouse, and I think that's pretty much the best advice I've ever gotten, Mr. Schuyler said. Just keep things light. We're not trying to pummel those seedlings. You just want to miss them. The Solo 418 one-liter, one-hand sprayer would handle a few flats. In a bigger setting, Mr. Schuyler uses a hosed and mist missile like the Dram 510. An article by Margaret Roach published in the New York Times on January 11th. It's okay to get carried away when you're shopping for flower seeds. close this week with a couple more snippets from The Gardener's Bed Book by Richardson Wright. January 29th, Horticulturalist Garden. Just as the sex of a hippopotamus is of interest only to another hippopotamus, so the garden of a horticulturist is of interest only to another horticulturist. For, be it remembered, the landscaped garden, the garden planted to make pretty pictures, irrespective of its plant material, is one thing, and the horticulturalist quite another. In the latter, the interest centers in the plants themselves. Mine, I'm afraid, belongs to this category. I have seen the owners of picture gardens leave this place with their noses tilted up to the Empyrean and muttering, my God, and he calls that a garden? I have also seen horticulturists crouch in rapture before my one solitary plant of the rare Daphne Giraldi. 
Though they are usually hectic jumbles, the gardens of horticulturists possess more personality than those that are professionally landscaped and are longer remembered. In clothing, the professional custom tailor-made look is desirable. It's not always desirable in gardens. The history of gardening makes fascinating reading. Start with the first chapter of Genesis and work upward. January 30th, The Contemplative Gardener. Among the many advantages of gardening is that the tranquilities afford one a chance to contemplate. So much of it is merely working with the hands, while the mind can wander like the wind where it lists. Gardening with brains is, most of the time, a silly and useless affectation. Once the work gets underway, the heart is aroused. Imagination takes wings, and placid contemplation leads the way over yonder hill. Perhaps it is because of its contemplative qualities that gardening has been so slow to attain popularity in America. Here, as some wag has said, we contemplate only one of two things. We contemplate marriage, or we contemplate divorce. And January 31st, unregarded folk. He hath exalted the humble and the meek, is no mere pious cliché in gardening. For often the seedlings that give the least promise produce flowers of the most exquisite beauty. This happens again and again with raising dahlias from seed, and with pyrethrums it is axiomatic that the weaker seedlings bear the most interesting blooms, whereas the robust kinds bear flowers that are only passable. I have found this also true of petunias. These notes being made for my own garden in Connecticut are applicable especially to that reason. The Gardener's Bed Book, Short and Long Pieces to be Read in Bed by Those Who Love Green Growing Things, is by Richardson Wright. And that wraps up edition 188 of Green and Growing in the Garden, the weekly gardening program produced for the Los Angeles Radio Reading Service. Please send your comments at www.lars.org or email us at one word, laradioreading at gmail.com. Give us suggestions of gardens or stories to follow, your thoughts on a favorite story you heard or what you think about the broadcast itself. Gardens are not just plants, soil, and irrigation. They speak to us of the world around us, even as we try to create order and structure. They connect us to our landscape and to the cycles of nature. They teach us patience, stewardship, and fortitude. They offer possibilities of beauty and of persistence, sometimes even of transcendence. And they open our senses to both the heart and the soul, to being alive, to being connected with other gardeners, other gardens, and other times. Whether in a container or in pots on a balcony in the city, in a defined, dedicated garden area, or planted around a suburban house, or in spaces surrounded by trees, landscape, and open sky, gardens are precious indeed, no matter where they are. I'm Hugh Ralston, your host. Thanks for joining us. Until the next time.